I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we unpack President-elect Joe Biden's win. How will he manage a full plate of trade issues and a divided Congress? Will he fall in line with the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party or maintain a moderate trade policy? And what will he do about China? And what will President Trump do with the rest of his term in office? Stay tuned for all of that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, this is our first reconvene after the election has been called. It's been called for President-elect Joe Biden. Of course, Donald Trump is disputing this. The Republicans in Congress are going along and disputing it as well. But either way, this is all great news for the trade guys because we're still in business. We still have a lot to talk about when it comes to trade. And whether there's a Biden presidency or not, we're going to have a lot to talk about in trade because President Biden is going to be inheriting a U.S. trade policy characterized by tariffs on global imports and many other things that President Trump, his negotiating style and all that. But doesn't a President Joe Biden have to deal with differences in his own party on trade, considering moderates have been more likely to go along with Republicans and be, you know, open with trade. And now we've got there's going to be a rift in the Democratic Party. Bill, can you speak to that? Yes, <laughs> being part of it. Let me say first, though, that even before we think about what Biden's going to do, we're going to be in business because of all the strange things that Trump can still do in the next 70 days. You know, mm. he's president until January 20th. And who knows what's going to happen between now and then? That's the question I've been getting from reporters the last several days is what's he going to do on this and that? And I mean, I think Biden's prepared that he's going to leave a big mess, but it might even be a bigger mess than we think. Scott, we should let our listeners know right now that Bill has not had lunch yet. He's liable to get cranky. <laughs> this could get all kinds of, you know, contentious in here. So just this is a caveat for you all listening out here. Bill has not had lunch yet. This could well happen, but count on me as a moderating influence and somebody who's, whose tummy is reasonably <laughs> yeah. full. As always, as always, my friend. But Bill, I am sorry I interrupted God you. God will be the I, voice and, and of I serenity. I didn't mean to apply that you're going to get even crankier than normal. So go ahead. Well, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of soul searching in, in the party, primarily for a different reason, which is that the election was not the blowout they were hoping for. They actually lost seats in the House and did not yep. take over the Senate. And there's a lot of recrimination, uh, basically the same two forces, you know, the moderates saying if the progressives had just shut up and stopped talking about defunding the police, we would have done better. And the progressives saying, no, it's because we weren't loud enough that we didn't do better. And that's a battle that is going to go on. It's been going on for 20 years and it will probably continue going on for 20 more. But it's also reflective of, of trade because it's sort of the same two forces and we'll see, you know, they did and trade during the campaign what they did on all issues, which is they put aside their differences. And you're quite right now that the differences are going to come out. Although what Biden is trying to do or what he's telegraphed doing is punting, basically, uh, for the first part of his term. He said, don't expect any new trade initiatives. We have COVID. We have an economic disaster. We have all this domestic stuff. We have infrastructure. That's where I'm going to concentrate. So in a way, he's suggesting that the debate over trade policy is going to be deferred. That doesn't mean that he can avoid the things that Trump is going to leave him. 
what to do about well, yeah, the China look, tariffs. Look, I think he's setting his priorities that make sense for his coalition, which is work on the urgent issues first. This similar to President Obama's start off with, look, we just had this financial crisis. We've got economic problems. We've got a domestic agenda first. So that doesn't surprise me. What I would note is, you know, well, President Biden would have a very different approach to the job. He's much more coalition builder, 36 years in the Senate. He knows you can't get things done without other people, as that's the only way to operate in the Senate. So there'll be some difference in mannerisms and certainly tone. And there'll be fewer Trumpian flourishes or whatever you want to call them, the idiosyncrasies that we've been dealing with for four years. But the politics of trade are strangely similar. Most importantly, uh, the electoral importance of Pennsylvania and the industrial Midwest, which were the very states that gave Trump the victory in 2016, and by returning from red to blue, have given Biden the victory in the 2020 election. That, that's the way it appears to me. And so the concerns and the very specific politics of the industrial Midwest are still going to be a factor as the administration moves forward. So let's talk about that for a second. The Republican Party seems to be trying to make the case that it's the party of the working class. Democratic Party, as we've discussed, is split over whether they're going to have a moderate trade policy, a progressive trade policy, something in between. We know Joe Biden to be an incrementalist. We know him to be someone who works across the aisle. Bill, what do you think is likely to happen here to reconcile what Scott is saying that Clearly, the Democrats need to be thinking about those states that flip back blue. They need to be thinking about those people there who firmly believe that things like NAFTA cost them their jobs. That's why I think you're going to see a slow roll on dealing with new trade things, because it's high risk for a Democratic administration to chart a course. I mean, you alluded to Obama. And at the time, I recall a bunch of us, and I was lobbying at the time, told them, you need to try to get new negotiating authority, because at that point it had been expired for a while. And we said, they'll give it to you. You've got a majority in both bodies, which Biden probably won't have. And you haven't irritated anybody. It's the second month of your term. You'll get it. And the answer was, no, no, we're doing health care, higher priority. We have to save all our political capital for that. And you couldn't really argue with that. But, you know, it took them five years to figure out that they needed to do something on trade. And I think there's a lot of people that are concerned. Sure, it makes perfect sense to say for the next, you know, six to nine months of the Biden presidency, let's focus on other stuff. But, you know, for the next five years, we're going to focus on other stuff. That just is chickening out, basically. There actually is, I mean, there's sort of a couple debates in the party. One is the old one, jobs, job loss, trade costs, jobs. It's the NAFTA debate, which will come if Biden makes any moves to rejoin TPP which I think he will eventually, but not right away, that'll be the same debate, you know, which is kind of a, a sterile debate. There is actually some creative thinking going on in the party, though, about, you know, how do you have a trade policy that is actually designed to help workers and to give workers advantages? I mean, the, the old debate has been, let's just be against these agreements because these agreements are bad, they cost jobs, so we're going to oppose them. The new argument is more, let's figure out how to design agreements that won't do that. You know, the cynic in me says that the trade skeptics, if you will, have gotten tired of the business community just calling them, you know, protectionists who are not interested in, in economic growth and just want to protect old jobs. They're sensitive to the fact that these guys have voted against virtually every trade agreement that's come up for the last 20 years. 
And I think now they're trying to say, let's find out what we're for. Let's stop talking about what we're against. Well, that's actually which a, is a good way to do it. thing to develop here. It's real political creativity. And it, it's necessary because you go back and look during the campaign. Bill did a terrific analysis of the various candidates' position. And uh, we noted at the time that Senator Warren's platform, which was the most detailed on trade, had a core similarity to President Trump's you know, approach to it. Uh, both in terms of U.S. leverage, but also in terms of victimhood. Uh, for Trump, it was about the previous bad deals that had been cut by his predecessors. For Senator Warren, the villain was big business. Okay, But they both had that narrative of villainhood that needed to drive it. And in this case, what I think Bill's leaning toward is there's a moment of creativity. There's an opportunity for a new coalition that supports trade agreements. They'll look a little different. The people who support them will be different. But I think it's time. I think we're, we're kind of at a dead end in both the old Democrat approach and the Trumpian approach are kind of both backed us into corners. If you just look at it from a political point of view, and we've talked about this before, if you look at polling data on this, the Democratic Party as a whole is more pro-trade right now than the Republican Party. Very strong pro-trade because their base is young people and minorities, and they are pro-globalization and pro-trade. The Democrats' dilemma is there is this overlay of organized labor leadership that is not. And they are still a significant element in the party infrastructure. They bring out people to vote. They do canvassing. They make phone calls. They contribute money. The Democrats all have this deep-seated loyalty to organized labor, even though, I, and I will have to look at the data in Pennsylvania and Ohio, but I will bet you you know, a substantial number of union workers once again voted for Trump. And the AFL-CIO has a leader-follower problem. You know, they've got leaders who understand very well that the Republicans don't like unions, and when they're in, they do everything they can to destroy unions. Look at Trump's non-trade activities, you know, at the NLRB and the people he appointed to that and labor law issues. But the workers, they vote on trade, but they vote Trump. And the dilemma the Democrats have is not just how do you deal with those people, but how do you deal with them in a way that doesn't cause you to lose all the other ones that are saying, you know, trade is a good thing. I think that's why they're taking a more positive approach. Let's figure out something that we can be for. And what we can be for is something, first of all, that supports action on climate change, which is a trade issue, among other things, which, of course, Trump ignored. And that's something that can unite Democrats. And second, something that is pro-worker in a constructive way and, and make sure that the benefits of trade flow down to the workers and are not entirely captured by corporations. They're still working out what that means in practice. And this is going to take time, I think, to play out. I mean, it's not there yet. OK, no. The closest we got was the overwhelming vote in favor of USMCA in this Congress, this current Congress, the most bipartisan vote we've had probably since the Uruguay Round Agreements Act in 1994. So it was an impressive achievement. It opened up the potential for something new, but that something new hasn't materialized yet. I think we just got to see how this plays out. So how does Biden build on that? USMACA was a bipartisan success. So how would Biden build on that without alienating the progressives in his party and without angering the Republicans? Well, I, I have a very Biden-like suggestion for that, which is let the committee chairman let Chairman Neal and Chairman Crapo of the Senate Finance Committee to work together and figure out how to move forward. That's what happened in, you know, 2014, 2015, when we got back to Trade Promotion Authority. It was the Congress working out the issues 
and developing a bill that they could live with. That's where you sound out these policy differences. He may be at his best staying away from it for a little while. The key issue that got labor on board was basically enforceability. You know, labor's complaint about NAFTA. Yeah, you had good words in there about labor, but what you didn't have was any mechanism to enforce them, to come back to the Mexicans and say, you're not meeting your commitments in this factory. You're not meeting your commitments in that factory. You're not doing what you promised you would do, and you're not doing anything about it in terms of what the Mexican government is doing. And Lighthizer didn't do this. What the unions and the Democrats forced him to do was build in a lot of procedures to make the agreement enforceable that actually had been dreamed up by Sherrod Brown, the Democrat from Ohio, and Ron Wyden from Oregon, the ranking Democrat on the Finance Committee, to create an enforceable structure. To the extent that we're going to negotiate with countries where labor rights and worker rights are a problem, there's a solution, and you can look at USMCA and and do that. But near-term negotiations, you know, the UK, I don't think we have a lot of labor issues with the UK. You know, we have other issues with the UK, but it's not an underdeveloped country, you know, and they're not paying slave labor wages, as far as I know. And so the issues are not going to be the same in every case. And one of labor's problems is going to have to be to figure out how to get beyond this visceral, we're against all of them. Actually, they're getting beyond it. If you look at their attitude on TTIP, this was a negotiation with Europe that Obama started, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. The people that were nervous about that actually was the right wing, not the union, because from the union standpoint, negotiating with the Germans was a giant upgrade. You know, they think German labor standards are better than ours. And they were very happy to have the United States potentially make concessions that would produce stronger labor rules here along the lines of what the Germans were doing. And it never got to that point in the negotiation. But if you talk to labor people at the time, they were not worried about a negotiation with the EU. They're worried about negotiations with developing countries with lower wage rates. Well, we're going to have to buckle in our seatbelts here, aren't we? Well, maybe the trade guys will continue to be some relevant to our listeners if this policy <laughs> develops over time and we have interesting things to say about it. So there's hope, you know. There is hope for the trade guys. After all, we thought we might be out of business if Tariff Man was out of business because, like, what will we have to talk about? But there's so much to talk about, right? Well, certainly, and, and particularly for the next month or two, who knows what Trump will dream up, you know? The EU just did their $4 billion of tariffs on us for Boeing Airbus. And so now is the U.S. going to retaliate? And if so, what do we think about that? I mean, the the big victims here actually is the liquor business. They keep getting slapped uh, both sides of their face over and over again. We put tariffs on European whiskey, wine, and they've just done the same thing to us. Yeah. And this greatly upsets me, as you know. If you're a drinker, you got problems. Everything just got more expensive. Let's just say I'm a connoisseur. Okay. And and I'm going to tell you this. There is a very, very fine book that hits the stores today. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Pappyland, a story of family, fine bourbon, and the things that last by the eminent writer, Wright Thompson of ESPN. And this book isn't really about bourbon. It's about the people behind Pappy Van Winkle, which as Scott knows, is the most famous and expensive bourbon in the world. Highly sought after. People chase cases of this like you wouldn't believe. It's like treasure hunts. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, James Carville was on MSNBC the other night talking about how he was going to crack open his bottle of Pappy if Biden won. And someone asked him, well, why is that such a big deal? He said, well, because 
it's about $300 an ounce. <laughs> That's why it's such a big deal. So I'm troubled by the constant smacking around of the spirit industry. Look, here's the good news, Andrew. You know, if you're a scotch drinker in the United States, things will get more expensive for you because of the U.S. tariffs on European imports. But what this means is because Pappy and other American whiskeys are now much more expensive in Europe, they'll be more plentiful here in the domestic market. So I say drink Tennessee whiskey, drink bourbon from Kentucky, drink wines from California, and wait till the airplane guys figure out what's going on. And we'll all be okay. Well, I think we're going to have to invite Ray Thompson to come on the trade guys and talk to us <laughs> about this. So that's my assignment Fair for enough. later today. Where I'm, is this I'm, stuff I'm made? It, is it made in Tennessee? Kentucky. Kentucky? Okay. So, I'm not a pappy connoisseur. Well, you are a pappy though. And a grandpappy. You're a happy pappy. You're a happy grandpappy. And so that's good. Let's move on for a second though. We've talked about what President-elect Biden may or may not do. What are the Chinese about to do? Well, they're stockpiling right at the moment. They're trying to meet their quantitative commitments on phase one. They've been very quiet. So are they? Yeah, they're really quiet. So like, are they just waiting to see how this all sorts itself out? And then they're going to, what can they do here to untwist themselves from the tariff man web? That's what their aim is. In the short run, I think they just want to avoid another crisis. I mean, Trump's days are numbered. How do we get through the next 70 days without more tariffs without more drama. And I think that that one way to do that is you make a run at meeting your purchase commitments. When we talked about this in the spring, I think we all made the point that that historically, particularly for agriculture anyway, most Chinese purchases of U.S. agriculture commodities are in the fourth quarter of the year. So it was no surprise uh, to us in June and July that they were behind. This is the time when they should be buying more, and they are buying more. And hopefully that will keep the fires in the White House banked and you're not going to see any near-term explosions as they try to head toward meeting their end-of-year commitments. They've also got to be planning for a Biden administration. I mean, they sort of saw it coming. They know him. You know, she knows him because they were vice presidents together for the first few years of Obama's administration, which meant they had, you know, a number of extended uh, interactions. I think they are opinion in China was split about who they wanted to win. But I think they know Biden and I think they're getting ready for a different approach, but the same policy. The Democratic analysis of what's wrong is the same as Trump's analysis of what's wrong. He'll go about it in a different way. And we've talked about that. President Trump's president until January 20th at noon. At that point, we may see some different actions, but I think Bill's right. They want to keep steady as she goes, at least until then, and review their options. I don't see anything dramatic happening. I also, and we've said this before on the program, is that I don't see an immediate relief from any Trump tariffs on China. They won't be instantly unwound, and that's going to be part of that feeling out with the new administration. I've been thinking about that because I did a different event where the tariffs came up. It was sort of a, what would Biden do? And a colleague, and I disagreed, uh, which surprised me a little bit, he thought the China tariffs would hang around and and the steel tariffs would go away relatively quickly. And I think the opposite. I mean, nothing's going to happen soon. Scott's exactly right. This is going to take a while to unravel. But I think Biden is very sensitive to the collateral damage the China tariffs caused. And he understands that it, it wasn't just our farmers who got kicked in the face. It was a lot of our manufacturers who were retaliated against by the Chinese So I think he's going to try to find a way to make them go away. You know there's going to be a negotiation. You know the two heads of state are going to meet. 
they always do. And you can be reasonably confident that because Biden's an, um, an institution guy and a process guy, there will be a new process. It won't be called the JCCT. It won't be called the SNED. It'll have some new name because presidents have to give it a new name. But it'll be a process for the two sides to meet at you know, ministerial level on down to address common issues. There'll be a negotiation. The Chinese will ultimately say or do something. And Biden will say, good enough, let's get rid of the tariffs, maybe pieces at a time. I think the steel tariffs are more complicated because going back to what you said, Andrew, steel and the steel industry, that's core to his victory. That's Pennsylvania, that's Michigan. And steel workers also represent the rubber workers and a bunch of other industries too. The union is consolidated. Right, I mean, throw in Ohio here too, right? Exactly. Sure. And I don't think they go away as easily as, as people may think they go away because this is domestic politics for Biden. The China tariffs right. are... The domestic politics plays out very differently. The domestic politics of the China tariffs, I think, is making them go away. The domestic politics of the steel industry is is not making them go away. You know, it's interesting. I, of note, one of Biden's top advisors and, and who has been someone who's been a foreign policy advisor, Jake Sullivan, it's been reported that Jake Sullivan is going to be focused more on domestic policy in a Biden administration. And, you know, it, it kind of makes sense because we're now where foreign policy and domestic policy really, really are intertwined. And this is a perfect example of it. Well, yes, politics and policy. I mean, I would hope from a policy point of view, and, and you know, the, the Biden people, they know all this. So they're, they're smart about this. I mean, the entire time I was in the Senate, Biden was there. He was there forever. And, you know, he knows the steel industry very well. He grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, which is not exactly the center of the industry, but it's not that far away from Bethlehem, mm -hmm. which at the time was a big producer. He knows these issues. And I think for them, you know, the truth is this is a global overcapacity problem, which we all know. And we all know who the culprit is. It's China. They're the ones that have created literally now half the world's total capacity is Chinese. And the question is, what do you do about it? And Trump's idea was, well, let's put tariffs on everybody and that'll force them to put tariffs on the Chinese, uh, which is not exactly what happened. I mean, it happened in some cases. It didn't happen across the board. I think the Biden approach typically, as, as Scott alluded to earlier, will be more cooperative. Let's get all the victims of overcapacity together and approach the Chinese collectively. And let's have a global, you know, it would be a global 201. It would be a global safeguard action where we all take action against China simultaneously and push the surplus back on them. But let's do it. You know, there are rules about that. The WTO says you can do that. Let's do it within the rules and let's not do it the way Trump did it. Look, this is going to take some time to play out. Yes. People that think this is all going to go away on January 21st are way off base. Yeah. Another reason to stay tuned. And stay tuned to the trade guys because the trade guys will make sense of it all for you. Let me ask you this, guys, before we go. So tactically, should we be thinking, you know, is President Biden going to renegotiate phase one? Should we be thinking, is he going to try to put TPP back together? Should we be thinking like that at this time? Or is it really just much broader strokes that we need to be thinking about? I think it's too soon to get into those specifics. I mean, he will want to have a negotiation with China because we have all these unresolved issues. And the reality is phase one didn't resolve any of the important issues. Well, and let's not forget, Joe Biden campaigned on being very tough on China. Yes. And he's going to get a, a rude awakening because this is not trade specifically, but he's saying exactly what Clinton said in 92. 
Clinton said, human rights is a big issue, and I'm going to push human rights in my interactions with the Chinese. He did that for about a year and discovered, A, he was getting nowhere. He was creating more hostility, and he was pushing away any possibility of cooperation from the Chinese on anything else, which he cared about. I think Biden's going to discover the same thing. You know, he's going to push them on human rights. Sadly, they're going to resist. Could to push them on climate change. Well, he's going to try to get their cooperation on climate change. And it wouldn't surprise me if they say, you want us to cooperate on climate change, stop beating us over the head on the Uyghurs. Yeah. You know, and then he's going to and have to decide what got, to do. He's also got to confront them on intellectual property. He's got to confront them on South China Sea. He's got to confront them on Mekong Delta. I mean, there's just a lot of issues out there. And the thing that what makes him different from Trump is he's going to be like Obama. He's going to look at that relationship holistically. It's not just about the size of the trade deficit. It's about, you know, military activity in East China Sea. It's about, you know, the security law in Hong Kong. It's about Uyghur concentration camps. It's about what he's doing to journalists. It's also about moving back to a state-controlled economy, yes. But he's going to approach all the pieces at the same time. It'll be interesting to see what he prioritizes. Yeah, it's the biggest issue in geopolitics, and uh, no matter who's president. And so he's got to face it that way. All right, guys. Well, the good news is we are back. We're back in business. We never left. We just took a week off for the election to try to sort itself out. And now that we know that it's going to take a few more weeks, we just couldn't resist. We had to jump back in it. And we'll be back here next week to talk about what else is going on. So thank you, gentlemen, for your bipartisanship, for your patience for your kindness, and Bill, especially you, for putting off lunch for another half hour. <laughs> I'm getting off right now to go have my soup. <laughs> Bye-bye. That's great. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.